Same text as last week, a part two. Same passage. We're looking at respectable, uh, respecting permissible differences, I should say. Respecting permissible differences means um, it has in view matters that the Bible doesn't decide for us, but leaves to our conscience, leaves to our preference. There's all kinds of these, but this is hard for a lot of Christians. Some of these areas can be tricky to navigate, matters of permissible difference, and at times there are dangers uh, in some of these matters uh, where we uh, agree to disagree, and and we can find our, our, our love uh, threatened or challenged. By and large, permissible differences are areas where we find our love for another tested. Can we still walk through permissible differences together, or do we have to, in the words of one author, drive the compromisers from our fortresses to die on their slippery slopes? It's really well put. As a fellow Canadian, Sheila, put it that way, actually, as an article by a Canadian. Maybe your views on this or that matter. We all have views on things, opinions, uh, practices. We draw our lines here. Somebody draws them in a little tighter. We draw them a little larger. Maybe your views on this or that matter has become so particularized that you only get along with your, your own tribe. But even then, you might not. I remember once having a, a discussion with a dedicated follower of the Lord Jesus who told me he was concerned he might, become, he might be becoming too conservative for any church. Uh, and he asked me to pray for him in that. And I respect a Christian like that. I can work with a Christian like that because in that admission, he was saying, I realize that fellowship is something I need. And I also realize that not everybody's as conservative as I am. And if I think I'm getting too conservative for the church, then I'm allowing permissible differences to take on a connotation that they are never meant to have. I'm not focusing on what I have in common with people in Christ. I'm focusing on differences. He didn't want to be hard to edify. The Spirit of God was in that admission, not not only just a great self-awareness, but the Spirit of God was working on this particular person. Struggles in fellowship over permissible differences are what are being addressed in this chapter on into the next one, Romans chapters 14 and 15. And last Sunday, we're going to pick back up where we left off. We're going to go back to the same three questions that we utilized last week to, to, to harness what we've got here in these 12 verses and also to set us up for verses 13 and following next time. The three questions that we're taking these 12 verses and, and sending them through are, what do I owe the person who differs from me? matters of permissible difference. We're not talking about matters of core doctrine, but what do I owe the person who differs from me? What can I learn from the person who differs from me? And then how do I cope with the person who differs from me? She stays on her side, I'm on mine. We're not going to get agreement on that, and so how do I cope with that? How does she cope with that? What do I owe? What can I learn And how do I cope with the person who differs from me? Now, before we go back through those three questions, a word about passing judgment. 
as you heard the text read, as you followed along in in your copy of, of God's Word, you see passing judgment. This phrase is repeated throughout this passage, and it's repeated as a negative admonition. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't pass judgment on one another. And that sounds so remarkably modern from one angle that we kind of do a double take. I mean, we go, "Is, is that you, Bible? You know, I thought the Bible was a really judgmental book. A lot of people out there think that. But then you get verse 4 here, chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And you say, well, yeah, that, that kind of sounds relativistic. Uh, the main idea of feeding relativism is right, wrong, who knows? Who decides? Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge when everyone should be free to decide for themselves? what's right and wrong. Now, we've heard that a long time culturally, and it's still around, although the cultural vibe on this has shifted. I have among my, in my library, my faith-defending books, my faith-sharing books, one from the 90s that gives the memorable line, we live in an age that grants plausibility to every idea and certainty to none, except that's no longer accurate. Just 20 years later, that's a dated statement. It signals that we're dealing with relativism in the 90s. And while relativism is still around, we've moved from moral relativism to moral pluralism. Competing, clashing ideas of right and wrong. All these ideological purity tests that both progressives and conservatives are always throwing at one another and even within their own circles. They get very cannibalistic. People aren't shrugging their shoulders anymore saying, who decides right and wrong, as they were trying to do in the 80s and the 90s, so much as they're now squaring their shoulders to confront and with certainty what they know is wrong and what they know is right. And if, and if something is wrong for them, right for them, then it, it has to be wrong or right for everyone. That's moral pluralism. The game has changed. We're a deeply opinionated culture. We know that. There's a lot of judgment. I mean, a lot of people now, modern type people, they're not even trying to hide that they're judgmental. And there's a lot of rush to judgment. But what we're being taught here, so you look at verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And and you may really love that. You may, oh, I love the Bible says that. You know, I'm so tired of, of these moralistic, you know, Christians, etc. And, and and maybe, maybe you've, you've got a, an angle on that. But we're not being told here to take to moral neutrality. I mean, if we took the position that what this is teaching is that we should never make any judgments whatsoever on one another, that's moral neutrality. And that's not what, where, where the Bible takes us. Uh, Jesus didn't go there. The apostles after him didn't go there. So all we have is a tension in the way this works out in our fellowship because the doctrine of sin is part of our core doctrine, squaring up to what sin is, naming sin, commending repentance for sin, both in unrighteous and self-righteous expressions, that requires that we make judgments. And many of the judgments we make, we just make anyway. They're reflexive. They just come out of us. I don't like that. I think that's wrong. 
That's commendable to me. I respect that. We make those judgments all the time. What we're being taught in this passage is to slow it down and be reflective and to calculate the values that are going on here when we make judgments. Before you act on a judgment past, whether it's something you've thought about and you know where you stand for sure and you want to you have a debate or whether it's just reflexive, well, I don't think I like that, I don't think I agree with that. What this passage is doing is it's slowing us down. It's, it's teaching us to, to think about it. Here's where if you took that line from the, the book of James in the New Testament, everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Here is a place where you can plug that in. Is this really worth the relationship? When it comes to permissible differences, you'll find plenty of people who've separated themselves over permissible differences. Uh, a lot of the factions that happen in the body of Christ are over permissible differences, not matters of core doctrine. But people think they are matters of core doctrine. They've taken their, their scruples, they've canonized their scruples, and they've tried to make everybody else uh, serve their scruples as, as a difference between obedience and disobedience to God. But that's the, the thing this passage is getting us to slow down from a doctrinal book like Romans. The first 11 chapters giving us very pure orthodoxy. You get to chapter 14, he's not tossing doctrine out the window. He's essentially saying, put this question before yourselves. Is this really a matter of core doctrine, life or death with Jesus? Or am I trying to weight my opinions with biblical authority and make things the Bible doesn't decide for us matters of obedience versus disobedience to God? And, and at some point, some time, some place, we're all tempted by that. Matters of obedience to God are matters the Bible decides for us. If it's a matter of obedience to God, we all do it now. That said, there's a qualifier, and next week in the passage to come, we will get to that qualifier and talk about it, that if you feel something to be a matter of obedience for you personally as a matter of conscience, we owe you respect of your conscience. He really gets to the nub of it in verse 6. After giving the examples in the first five verses of, of, of special diets uh, that looks back to the uh, Jewish dietary laws is what he has in view, and, and, and calendar considerations, certain days are more holy than others, which also looks back to, to Jewish calendaring. Verse 6, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now with this in mind, this dynamic Let's go back through our three questions from last week, beginning with our first one here. What do I owe the person who differs from me? Last week, we talked about how we owe welcome. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We'll find this word welcome again in chapter 15. So as a, as a first point of emphasis last week when we asked the question, what do I owe the person who differs from me? We talked about welcome. And that welcome is not just the greeting we pass to one another coming in the door of church, it's a practiced inclusion that seeks to close whatever distance 
and differences that we find among one another, seeks to close the relational distance that a difference can often set as much as it depends on us. So that was last week. We talked about welcome. This week, in answer to this question, what do we owe? Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. There it is. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Verse 3. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Don't despise the one on the other side of a permissible difference. Put this with verse 6 again. The one who observes a day, observes it on the Lord. The one who eats, eats and on the Lord, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains does the same thing. Abstains and on the Lord and also gives thanks to God. What I'm going to call it this week is convictional kindness. What we owe one another is convictional kindness. I I got the word from uh, Russell Moore. I heard him give a a lecture on this down at Beeson. It's a really really good way of putting it. You could also say generosity of spirit. By convictional kindness, we mean generosity of spirit. Either way, what we're getting at is this. Looking at verses 3 and 6, note how verse 6 runs in particularly. Do I really want to demean something that a fellow believer praises God from? Do I really want to demean something that a fellow believer praises God with? Do I want to wither someone's gratitude to God before it blooms? G.K. Chesterton once had a very powerful observation along these lines. He said, idolatry is committed not just by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils. Think about that. Idolatry is committed not merely by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils. And so I think, as I often want to turn things in my, inward on my direction... I think about Bible teachers that I've poor-mouthed because they didn't slice the pie exactly like I did. I think about evangelical movements that I've rolled my eyes at. Oh, gosh, do we all have to show up to this now? Do we all have to be behind this thing? I think of organizations that I've considered and consider still embarrassing to the church. And yes, some of them were flashes in the pan, but while they burned, they burned bright, and they warmed and fired up many for the cause of Christ. And that's something I can rejoice in. Just because I don't get warmed by that fire doesn't mean other Christians can't. And what was I trying to do when I was dousing water on it? I was trying to prop myself up by creating a devil. When we do that, when we make ourselves, our theological pedigree, the judge of what's edifying for the body of Christ and not, then we lose sight that the kingdom is so much bigger than you and me. See, if you want to say, for instance, let's take the old Arminianism, Calvinism debate. If you want to say, for instance, you know, Arminians aren't real Christians, they're heretics, Or if you want to say uh, Calvinism is garbage, this text says to us, who are you to say that? Doesn't each position, look at the language in verse 4, doesn't each position stand or fall before a master who is not you? 
Don't Christians take both places and serve and praise Christ from them? Of course they do. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master these stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Look down verses 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, verse 7. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. And the mention of the dead here is also crucial. I think it was Chesterton who also gave us the insight that tradition is the vote we give to our ancestors. (laughs) He talked about how we need the democracy of the dead lest we uh, walk around thinking we're the ones we've been waiting for and whatever we say in the here and now goes. Convictional kindness, if I'm practicing it rightly, it also keeps me from misrepresenting, misconstruing those who've gone before us, what they thought, where they stood, what they held. It keeps me from absolutizing this present moment, here and now, as the be-all and end-all of everything. What do I owe somebody who differs from me? I owe them convictional kindness, which means I don't have to give up anything for my conviction, but I've got to be kind. And kindness includes, am I representing their view in such a way they can recognize themselves in it? Or am I setting up what's called straw men? Straw men, the idea philosophically is that you, you erect a caricature of another view so you can knock it down, a straw man. It's not kindness. If, if you critique somebody else's view, make sure that they can recognize themselves in the critique. That's really all you can ever ask for someone who critiques you. Just make sure I can recognize myself in the critique. If you say I believe that, then I recognize I actually do believe that. That's what we owe one another. Last week, welcome. This week, convictional kindness. Second question from last week. What can I learn from those who differ from me? I don't think that I can emphasize the second question enough. What do I learn from those who differ from me? This question may be the most important of the three because it requires that we check our dismissiveness. You know, there's always in the church people who like to pigeonhole. Oh, well, you're this, so therefore I don't need to talk to you. Or you're into that, so therefore, I don't really need to get to know you. It's a lot of that that goes on uh, in the free market that is uh, evangelicalism. But here's this question. What can I learn from the one who differs from me? This is a huge question when mutual edification is the goal. Pradeep tells a great story. Maybe you've heard him tell it about a German pastor hosting an American missionary for dinner. They sat down at table in the pastor's home. A beer was placed before the American missionary, who was a teetotaler. He uh, did not uh, drink alcohol. He uh, was bound by his mission organization not to drink alcohol. In fact, as it was an organization that that required that of, of their missionaries. And so he said, as soon as the beer was placed, he looked at the pastor and he said, Oh, I'm sorry. 
I cannot drink this, to which the pastor bowed his head to thank God for the meal. And the first words out of his mouth were, Lord, I thank you that you made me German. (laughs) That is funny. And it's understandable. But notice again, verse 6. We thank God for what we believe he permits us. If it's a freedom, if my conscience is free, if my preferences are set there, If I believe the Lord allows this and so I engage it, well, in doing so, uh, I thank him for that. But also, note in verse 6, I also thank God for what he keeps from me. And if my conscience isn't free to do that, then uh, I, I also thank God for what he teaches me in putting limits around me. It's both in the body of Christ. Verse 6 is both. If you drink socially, Scripture draws the line at drunkenness. It doesn't tell us whether we can drink or not. It just says don't get drunk on wine. And so if if you're someone who drinks socially, is there nothing to learn from the one who totally abstains? Or do you find it easy to dismiss that person as, well, they're kind of wound tight? Can we learn anything about self-discipline from the teetotaler? And for the teetotaler... Can the one who abstains learn something from the one who receives the hospitality offered him or her in the moment without raising questions of conscience? Paul talks about that over with the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10, about when you go into the pagan's home and the meat is set before you, don't say, was this offered to idols in the marketplace? Because if it is, I can't eat it. Paul says, "Don't, don't put that limit on yourself. We'll talk about this more next week, but there's really a fine book by uh, Alan Jacobs called How to Think. Alan Jacobs teaches out at Baylor in Waco, Texas, many years at Wheaton. And in the book, Alan Jacobs makes the point that when we get emotionally invested in our tribalism, we get emotionally invested in, in our sect, in our way of doing it, in our way of seeing it, We can't learn from anyone who sees it or does it differently than we do because we think they're wrong. And the kind of wrong we associate them with is biblical wrong. It's not biblical. I've heard Christians through the years call a hundred things not biblical. It doesn't even, I mean, one time uh, we were talking about electronic giving and somebody said that's not biblical. I don't think electricity is biblical either, (laughs) but we wired the church with electricity. I don't think air conditioning is biblical, but we have it in our building. I mean, this gets silly at some points, but watch what you say reflexively. Well, that's not biblical. Come on. What happens to us is, is we live in a kind of feedback loop, and evangelicals are kind of the worst at this. Because we have our own little evangelical universe that's out there in orbit. We have our own things, our own books, our own colleges, our own everything. And what happens is is we get these Saturn rings of feedback orbit. A feedback orbit is all your output is from input. There's nothing coming in from outside. You, You know, you think you do evangelism because you read books about evangelism. But you don't know any unbelievers. You think you know what to say to an unbeliever because you've read the books, but you've had no discussion with an unbeliever. This is evangelicalism. 
It's a feedback loop. And what happens in a feedback loop is I keep reinforcing what I believe and practice and know. And I'm just around people all the time who believe and practice and know the same things that I do. And so in a feedback loop, I'm really not reflecting. When something enters the feedback loop that seems foreign, like a little asteroid that comes into our little orbit, I refute, you know. I go pit, well, I've got a very nice pit bull. Um, I attack. I react. It took me years to learn what I'm about to say. Years. That a sound theology is very personally securing. Show me someone who's always trying to argue, who's always trying to argue their way, their point, their perspective. It needs to be this way. This is the way we should do it, not these other ways. These other Christians are wrong. It needs to be this way. And I'll show you somebody who's really insecure. The need to win arguments, to feel good about their beliefs. As I said last week, it's not that we, it it is not, please don't hear me saying, we need to keep our beliefs to ourselves. That's not what we're saying. Persuasion is something we do engage in, and persuasion is good, but it's, there's an art to it. It's not the world's strongest man competition. There's a charitableness to engaging with others with whom we differ. And look, I'm a a repeat offender, unfortunately. I've got a record of of not doing this in a charitable way, and I regret every one of those times. And I've tried to learn from them. This passage is actually telling us something very securing. And it's this, that if the Lordship of Christ covers all permissible differences, and it does, if the end to which Jesus Christ lived and died and lives now is for drawing a people, a diverse people, to himself, and that is true as well, then God is not tolerating variety in his church. All these compromisers, wait till judgment day. God is working conscientious variety into the body of Christ for our edification and for his glory. And glory, when you look at glory biblically, what it is, uh, glory has to do with beauty and duty. The beauty in this context is harmony. When all the different parts of the body, we're not all hands, we're not all feet, we're not all shoulders... We're not all elbows. Everybody's got their part. That's the analogy from 1 Corinthians 12. If the whole body was an eye, if the whole body was an ear, some of you are familiar with that. Paul taught that. Use that imagery. The, the beauty of glorification in this passage is when the different parts of the body respect one another's consciences and preferences over permissible differences. Even if I can't go there, even if I have no interest in doing it or seeing it the way you do or see it, I can still learn from you. And I can probably learn from you more than I think I can. And if I do, that's beautiful. Jesus is beautifully glorified when I respect that he is the master before whom his people stand or fall. Not me or you, not us. 
We'll come back to this next week, but Alan Jacobs in his book, How to Think, that I mentioned a moment ago, he calls thinking, thinking is the power to be finely aware and richly responsible. That's when you're thinking. If you're just going along with the herd, you're not thinking. Thinking appreciates that there's nuance. Thinking appreciates that it's not always that simple. Thinking appreciates that you're going to find some exceptions to where you've drawn your hard and fast lines. Thinking is the power to be finely aware and richly responsible. We're going to come back to that again next week and use it in the passage that follows here. But you think about glory. It's both beauty and duty. The duty in this context is this rich responsibility that belongs on the shoulders of the one who has the stronger view. I just touched on this last week. But the duty to maintain relational integrity is on the one with the stronger view. The responsibility for maintaining relational integrity, according to this passage, belongs to the one who has the stronger position. But that, friends, evangelicals, countrymen, that is often precisely what we do not see. We have it completely backwards. What we see instead too often are the ones with stronger positions end up alienating, separating, questioning to a fault, dividing over, issuing litmus tests and shibboleths. And they do so ironically thinking they're glorifying God even though everything about the way they carry their views is unattractive as well as irresponsible when it comes to keeping the peace. Every divisive person I have ever dealt with in the body of Christ never thought they were divisive. They thought they were the, glor- they were the, they were the guard of the gate for, the, for which through the Shekinah glory of God was passing. And we were all wrong. Now question three. How do we cope? How do we cope with those who differ from us? Simple answer, but very hard to do. We place ourselves before the judgment seat of God, not one another. God tells us here, get out of my chair. There's only one judgment seat, and it's not yours to sit in. Don't even even wander in here and try to sit in it. Get out of my chair. And the reason it's not ours to sit in it is because we're finite, and we're limited, and we don't see the heart. He is infinite and unlimited and perfect in all his ways, and he does see the heart. And Paul is actually in this passage, I mean, if you don't like this passage, if you wish Paul would tighten it up, what does that say about you? If you're like, you know, I think he leaves it too free and too open. Well, there's a lot of things the Lord isn't going to decide for us. He's going to not just like leave it to us as if it's only our call, but he gives us wisdom. He gives us principles. He decides some things for us, like, you know, whatever you decide, you've still got to... You've still got to relate to your brothers and sisters, and they're not all the same. They're not all going to be on the same page as you. Look at verses 10 through 11, and note the emphasis. Three times, verses 10 through 11 and 12. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? I mean, he just gave the instruction not to do it, and now he says, you know, why do you do it? Why are you still doing it? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
Look again at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? Put another way, he's saying, how could it ever occur to us, those over whom God has lifted his condemnation, how, would, how does it ever occur to us to draw it back in and put, and put it over someone else? Placing ourselves before the judgment seat of God this way I'm putting it, is a form of preaching the gospel to ourselves. We keep ourselves mindful that the basis of anyone standing before God is Jesus died for me, not my scruples. And so, look, as mad as we might get with one another over permissible differences, and we do, people get mad over these things. They struggle. Our standing before God is what promotes peace. We'll see it next week down in verse 17. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? It's in Matthew 18, parable Jesus told. Parable Jesus told in response to a question on forgiveness. But the interesting thing about that parable, the reason I thought of it in this context in Romans 14, is that parable involves a judgment seat. Wherefrom... Incredible mercy is issued. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, there's a judgment seat, and yet mercy comes from it, completely unexpected in the context. But that's precisely what happens to us in Christ. Jesus in that parable is, is, is not just addressing the question of forgiveness. He's foreshadowing ultimate forgiveness, which is the removal of judgment. But in that parable, what does the one issued mercy do? If you know the story, you know. Resorts to judgment. No sooner is he shown mercy that he goes out and he finds somebody he's offended by and resorts to judging that person. And Jesus says to us, his followers, through that parable, that's the worst possible position you could put yourself in. To occupy yourself with, with judgment when from my judgment seat you've received mercy? This accounting of ourselves, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I know what this looks like for unbelievers. I don't know exactly what this looks like for believers. The difference between us and unbelievers is that our sin has been judged and we're justified never to be lost again. Our judgment already took place on the cross. But this accounting for ourselves, for, for we who are in Christ, just to think this out here at the end, I expect this accounting of ourselves is concerned with our response to our Savior over the course of our redeemed life. This accounting of ourselves to come is not answering for our sin. That's covered. I know it's not that because the gospel says it's not that. Which is why I say putting ourselves before the judgment seat of God, using that as an image, rather than putting one another there. God's going to get you for that. Just you wait till judgment day. You know. Putting ourselves before the judgment seat of God is a way of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Reminding ourselves of what the basis of our acceptance with God is. What I think this accounting of ourselves is, it's, it's our getting to see when we're with the Lord, are getting to see when and where we were most responsive to our Savior and not. 
I don't picture this like a sad movie you sit through when you arrive in heaven, you know, go sit in this room, there's something you need to see, big screen drops, and you watch a lifetime of mistakes and wince with embarrassment and revulsion at yourself, and you get this scolding Jesus narrating, look at that. You didn't go sit with that person. You let them sit all alone in the lunchroom. How could you? Lord, I was, I was five years old. I, I didn't know, you know. It's not like that, thankfully. I think the Lord likes his people, not just loves us. But Scripture does tell us elsewhere that tears get wiped away when we're home, home, capital H, home. And I suspect, and this is just an intimation, it's the other side of the curtain, but I suspect those tears of ours include the realization that we had so many more opportunities to glorify Jesus than we took. We'll know we had so much more grace resources than we ever put to use. So much more goodwill from the Lord than we realized here. But we'll see, you know, we withheld it too often. We'll see our permissible differences at that point for what they really are. Permissible differences. I don't envision a, a why should I let you in scenario for us. That's a fine evangelistic question to ask people. But for us in Christ, I envision the accounting being grace-filled, but more as a you know, there were a lot of times you didn't let me in. And we say, where, Lord, where were those, those times? And he shows us one another. He just shows us one another. And you think, man, I didn't cope very well, Lord, with those who differed from me. And No, you didn't. But Jesus will also show us the scars, the wounds. That's why we're there. And I think he'll also show us that behind every longing we ever had, every love we ever sought was, was a longing and a seeking for him. That really he is who we were looking for our, our entire lives. In transcendent experience, we wanted, we wanted him. And so we, we knew that and we also didn't know it. We responded to him and we didn't respond to him. We left a lot on the table, but he didn't. He continued to grace. He continued to bless. He continued to secure us on our worst days because that's what it means to be the Lord of the living and the dead. It means that once you are not living, he's still your Lord. He's still with you. It means that we're still living past our life dates here. And so this accounting of ourselves, it's not something to dread. It's actually something to anticipate but I think it's also how we cope with differences here and now. We already know, if you're honest, you already know you could be more dedicated to him than you are. I know that. You know that. We live with that realization. It's the, it's the, it's the weight of sin that we're, we're still carrying. It's, he breaks the power of canceled sin. It's canceled. It's not going to condemn us, but it, it's still something we're slogging through. It's the governor on our engine. It's the, it's the, the gate in our, in our stride. But... We will hear from his own lips at this accounting how dedicated to us he's always been all this time. And that even the desire to please him pleased him. That's how good he is. He took all these times we did respond to him in trying to love one another through permissible differences. And even if we felt like our efforts were really paltry, Jesus takes those times. It's like the bread and the fish. You give him a little bit and he does a lot with it. And, and we'll see in the accounting, we'll see how God took our efforts, even though they were feeble, and he did something with them more and better than we even knew was happening. 
and be blown away by that. How he gained glory from our response to him, and we didn't even know he was gaining it. I think the greatest truth we know when we're in a passage like this is that the Lord of all welcomes us to himself even on judgment day. <laughs> the very day should push us away. Would you stand with me? I think, uh, Ken, let's sing that uh, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Let's go through that chorus and then we'll have our benediction. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us into a diverse body. And we don't look so diverse in here, but there are many instances where we draw our lines tighter, looser, freedoms, liberties, matters of conscience, preference, theologically, philosophically, practically, politically, on the list goes. There's so many things we can differ over. Lord, I pray that you will do a work in First of Anne, that when we come in the doors Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and all times in between, that you just uh, work in us such that, that our focus would be on our mutual standing and that it wouldn't be on, I can't believe, you know, he lets her, his kid wear that. I can't believe that uh, uh, they think this song is good. Now, Lord, that you would just melt that away from us. And that what happens is that our discernment is actually sharpened. It's not lax. It's sharpened because we begin to, to see what we need to really see, and that is how grace works. It doesn't make us sloppy. It doesn't make us derelict. It makes us secure. It gives us hope and confidence in your love for us. And so when we encounter a difference, I'm going to educate my children this way. Well, I'm, I'm going to send my kids here. It, it doesn't become a, well, I can't have fellowship with you. It becomes a, hey, I want to pray for your kids. They're going into a tough environment. And hey, I'm going to pray for, for you because you're going to have difficult days educating them there at, at home. And I want to pray that, you, that God uses this in your kid's life. If that was our response to each other and it became known, I think people would beat the doors down, Lord, to get in here because they don't get that kind of acceptance, that kind of love anywhere else. And so let it not be latent in our midst. Make it something that uh, begins to, to really move out from us, but it's none of us on the inside miss it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.